We have one announcement, and that pertains to our worship service next Sunday. Our second service next Sunday will be at 2 o'clock p.m. So next Sunday, our worship service at 2 o'clock p.m. in the afternoon. We turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We read the chapter, we take as our text, verses 8 through 12. We hear the inspired, infallible word of God. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they may also, without the word, be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating of the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise ye husbands dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife, as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered, Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. 
The like figure whereunto even baptism doth now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. Our text, as I say it is, verses 8 through 12. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Peter has established the glorious foundation that we as Christians have, and the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. He proceeded then in chapter 2, verses 13 and following to give special words of guidance and teaching to various groups of Christians within the church. Peter's concern was to instruct the saints how they are to give God all the glory as they live and as they walk among the Gentiles. They're strangers. They're pilgrims scattered. And now as they live among the Gentiles, how is it that they are to be a witness? We're to live and we're to walk in a manner that reflects who we are by the wonder of God's grace. We're pilgrims. We're strangers. We're a people who have been separated by God unto himself and called to show forth his praise. And the apostle's point is, you're being watched. And so it is today. People are watching us. We live in a manner that shows that we're God's children. And that reflects the power of His grace and the fruit of that salvation. So Peter began with instruction to those in authority. He spoke then to Christian wives, set forth the true beauty that they're to aspire. He set forth instruction for Christian husbands and the calling that is theirs as they dwell with their wives. And now he turns to all the members of the church with a general advice. The text says, finally, of all the hundreds of things that the apostle could have said about our relation together as Christians, the Spirit directs Peter to this admonition. He calls us to be a certain kind of a people who live together in a certain manner, one with another. The church is a crucially important gathering of those who have been called out of darkness into God's glorious light. And God's people must know how they are to conduct themselves toward one another in the fellowship of the people of God. And so what Peter sets forth before us here is a calling that we can't do alone. There are those who separate themselves from the church and believe they can live as Christians apart from the church. We cannot walk that pilgrim's journey in obedience to Christ separate from the saints 
This is a calling that requires of us conduct and interaction with the saints. We are to live with one another as fellowship with the people of God. Also, we can't do this alone. We need God's help. God sets us within the company of believers. And he says, together you are to set your eyes on that destination. And together you are to live in peace and harmony as you walk toward that goal. It's impossible for us to do this apart from God's grace and God's mercy. So that Peter here is talking to saints. Saints who know the mercy of God. Saints who are a praying people who look to God for grace and strength to show submission to authority, to live faithfully in marriage as husband and wife, and now also to live faithfully in the church of Jesus Christ as fellow saints. This is the fruit of salvation. This is the thankfulness to which God calls us. And we take up this calling out of gratitude to God We are thankful for what God has done for us. Love for God is the most basic of Christian virtues that God has given us to know. And now our calling as those who are recipients of that love is to reflect it within the household of faith. We take as our theme, living in love as believers, noting the way of the flesh. The apostle says, don't walk this way. Secondly, noting the walk of the Spirit to which we are called. And finally, the powerful incentive that is set forth. First of all, the way of the flesh is clearly described here. And we are pricked as we self-analyze our walk and our conduct among one another. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing. The most precious treasure that we have as God's children is the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ. This is a treasure that is most valuable to us. It's not a treasure that we stick on a shelf somewhere. We don't view the wonder of our salvation as something that's merely outward morality truth. We embrace the wonder of our salvation as a most precious blessing that touches the whole of our life. And the whole of our life then is as that which is a well springing up unto Life everlasting because of that work of God's grace within us. It's that wonder of salvation that gives peace to our troubled consciences. It's the glory of that salvation that gives purity to our hearts. It's that glorious salvation that guides us when we're confused. It sustains us when we're weak. It defends us in danger, comforts us in sorrow, and it sweetens the reality of death. This glorious gospel we treasure and we embrace. And God has given it freely to us. And so the apostle is speaking now of those who are the recipients of this glorious salvation. And he's talking now very practically. This is how you live. This is what it looks like to live out of that salvation. You don't just confess that you have this salvation and then pursue the ways of the flesh and the way of the devil. Now, all who will live godly will suffer persecution. And that persecution is not primarily going to come from the wicked world around us. It's going to come from family members. It's going to come from members 
who claim themselves to be Christians. It comes from the church, tragically. And that's really what the apostle here now is talking about. Struggles and challenges and opposition that rise from among the congregation of God's people. So that this admonition doesn't apply so much to the reality of unbelievers persecuting the saints. Other passages talk about that. And about God's care for and God's protection for those who are being persecuted by unbelievers. This one has to do now with living within the household of faith. And the challenge and the struggles that we face because we carry with us sinful natures. And sinful natures remain in the members of God's church and God's saints. So that within the church, there is that temptation, according to the flesh, to rise up with a spirit of revenge. With a spirit that desires to repay evil with evil. To get revenge. Railing with railing. And so Peter says to God's children now, to us in the household of faith, don't walk this way. You need not seek revenge. You must not live in a manner that seeks to get back and replaces evil with evil. Despite having to endure reproach, even from among those close to you, those whom you love, you must return good for evil and blessing for cursing. Now we expect that the Christian life is going to be evil spoken of. Throughout the history of the world, the gospel has been slandered and the gospel has been attacked on every front. Its doctrines misstated, misrepresented, misapplied. Its effect on men called into question. And that's chiefly again due to the wickedness of men and women who desire the darkness rather than the light. They hate Christ. They hate the gospel that teaches that they are totally depraved sinners. They hate the truth of salvation, all of grace. But the behavior of those who confess Christ can also contribute to that reproach. And that's what the apostle now here is concerned about. You need to live in a manner that reflects who you are and the wonder of God's grace in your lives. And your conduct, one toward another is going to give occasion either for God to be glorified or mocked. Your conduct toward your neighbor, within your household, within the church, is being watched. Now we know the work of regeneration is far from perfect in the life of the child of God. God has given to us new hearts. But again, those new hearts exist in the midst of a depraved nature. And the child of God then is constantly prone to give ammunition to the world. The world that says, you say you're a Christian. This is how you conducted yourself. Obviously then, God's grace is not very powerful. Obviously it doesn't mean much to be a Christian. And they then slander God and the power of the salvation that God has worked in his children. This is the concern that the apostle is bringing to bear now to the church of Jesus Christ. He expressed it in chapter 2, verse 12. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. The manner in which you respond to those who come with accusations is important. 
They come with evil reports, perhaps. Perhaps they come with a report that's accurate. How do you respond? How do you react? Our flesh responds quickly with the desire for revenge. And Peter uses then verses 9 through 14 here in chapter 3 to call Christians to rise above your flesh. Rise above your natural reaction. And cause your response to be that which is tempered by the power of the gospel and the wonder of salvation. Our flesh would quickly seek injury. It would seek reproach through our actions and our language. We must use a soft answer to turn away wrath. We must turn our cheek as our Lord did. Now, God inspires the Apostle Peter to write these words. And Peter does not write this in a vacuum. He's not writing in a glass house. Peter knows how real this is. And Peter himself responded in a very sinful way. His response in the face of opposition was to pull out a sword and try to cut the head off of the man that was ahead of him. Peter learned by God's grace And now Peter directs this word to his listeners. Don't do like I did. Don't seek revenge. Don't seek to get back. Leave vengeance in God's hand. He continues, Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil. Verses 10 and 11. You know as well as I the power of your tongue. Your tongue is a key member of your body and so quickly and so easily that tongue proceeds down the path of sin. The reference here is to speech and the power of speech. The inner heart of a man is revealed often by his speech and his conduct. He confesses to be a child of God, but then under pressure, cursing and swearing flows from his lips, reflecting a lack of submission to God and God's will and the work of sanctification in his or her life. The Psalms talk about this repeatedly and the Apostle here in this section quotes again and again from Psalm 34. James talks about the power of the tongue as we're familiar in James 3 verses 2 through 5. James talking there about how difficult it is to tame the tongue and the power of the tongue and the influence of that tongue in the lives of God's children. Experiencing the reality of that struggle. It's easier to tame a wild horse than it is a tongue. Jesus spoke of it in Matthew 12, verses 35 to 37. Again in Matthew 15, 17 to 20. So that throughout the Bible we find warnings concerning the tongue. And how easy and quickly believers are inclined to use the tongue in a manner that does not reflect the power of God's grace. The admonition here is stop your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from guile. Now what is evil? We're familiar with evil, that which is sinful, that which is corrupt. Guile is that which is deceitful. It's that which breaks the ninth commandment. It's that which says one thing but means something different. 
And so leaves people then with a wrong understanding of what really is in your heart. Use your mouth, use your tongue to promote good, the good of the neighbor, to be truthful in all things. Now this starts in the home, in our interactions with one another, our spouse, our children, our parents, our siblings. Such good speak is going, speech is going to build up. It's going to strengthen relationships, whether those relationships be in marriage or with our siblings. It's going to promote peace within homes and within families. Within the church, don't use your tongue to backbite, to slander, to gossip, to lie, but to build up, to edify. Now, when we're speaking evil, when we're speaking guile, there's no peace. There's no joy. And that's the apostle's point here. That's not how a pilgrim and a stranger lives. That's not how he or she conducts himself or herself. And you're not only walking contrary one to another, you're at war with God. The God who has so marvelously and so wondrously saved and delivered you. And your life then is going to be miserable. You live according to the flesh and you're going to be focused on self. You're going to serve self. Your tongue is going to serve self. You're not going to care about others. You're merely going to be concerned that you don't be slighted, that you don't be harmed or affected by someone else. Where that spirit rules, all kinds of trouble exists in families, in homes, and in the church. There's no peace. And there's no peace with God. Again, Peter here is speaking from personal experience. You children remember how Peter conducted himself when he was moving around after Jesus had been captured. He was in the courtyard. And then he found himself over here. And people asked, Peter, weren't you with, weren't you with that Jesus? And remember, he cursed and he swore. From his lips flowed that which was not conducive for a child of God. He had a fierce response to those who would try to associate him with Jesus. He rose up in pride over against those who associated him with Christ. And that's the response so quickly also of our natures. Our tongues reveal then that depravity and that sinfulness. Again, the apostles point. You are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You have been begotten again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You're born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Live out of that glorious salvation, not walking in a manner that reflects evil and sin from your lips. Positively then, the Spirit points out here the walk of the Spirit to which we are called. In verse 8, Be all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. The child of God, as he walks by the Spirit in the knowledge and joy of his salvation, shows a godly conduct in reference to those who are his fellow believers as well as those who are outside. This is the fruit of God's grace. This is the fruit of salvation in our lives. 
Now, there are three main commands here, again, that we have to evaluate ourselves over against. Be of the same mind, have compassion of one another, and love as brethren. These aren't to be compared with three plants that are growing in separate pots. These are like three shoots that are coming out of the same root. And the root out of which they're coming from is the love of God in Jesus Christ. So that the love of God in Jesus Christ brings forth this fruit. Be of one mind, have compassion one of another, and love as brethren. Now, although all of these commandments have to do with the inner disposition of a man, these terms are used to express also the outward expression of that love, that kindness. When we tell someone to be kind, we're not admonishing just to show outwardly some references of kindness. We want that kindness to be flowing from their heart. We want it to be genuine and sincere. The love of God does not stay hidden again within us. But where God has implanted His love in the hearts and lives of His children, that love is evident. Now, because of our sinful natures, again, that love is corrupted. That love does not always display itself as we ought. And so, the admonition and the need for God's grace and for the power of the Spirit, that that love of God that is within us grows, that it increases in our lives, and that it shows itself in this manner as a glorious plant that's rising up that reflects itself in our desire to be of the same mind, have compassion one to another, and show love toward our brethren. So powerful is that love within us and in its expression that it makes it so that even people who are not Christians, who see evidence of this, are left with a favorable impression of what it means to be a Christian. That gets at again. The idea of our witness in the community and before men. That others are left then without excuse when they see the power of God's grace and the conduct and attitude of God's children. Now let's look at them in order. First of all, be all of one mind. This is a common admonition that's found also throughout many of the Apostle Paul's epistles. Often, God inspired the Spirit to move men to write this admonition. And again, impressing upon us, this is something we need to hear. Be all of one mind. We read of the same admonition in Romans 12, verse 16, Romans 15, verses 5 and 6, 1 Corinthians 1, 10, 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Philippians 1, 27, Philippians 2, verse 2. Again and again, God directs to the church, be of one mind. An admonition so often repeated, obviously, it's considered important by the Spirit. And so we need to understand it. Otherwise, we won't obey it. The term mind here is used to refer to sentiment or opinion. Christians are to have the same sentiments, the same feelings as one another. Now, this doesn't mean that we're going to have the same sentiments on every subject or even on every subject pertaining to religion. If a man uses his God-given ability to study and his gifts to think, 
He's going to differ in some respects from others because God has given him his own distinct mind. We understand there's going to be differences in perspective, in depth, in understanding. The meaning here is that we are to be entirely united on those views, doctrinally and practically, that belong to the heart of Christianity. There are principles that unite. Discussion is necessary in order to determine what are the matters that are essential, what are the matters that are not essential. And so as God's church and as God's saints throughout the ages have faced that discussion, confessions and creeds have been written. Confessions and creeds that lay out, here are the matters that are essential. And matters that are not specifically addressed are viewed then as matters that are non-essential. The truth of God, as it is in Jesus Christ, promotes unity over against enemies who say the confessions are not going to promote unity. We insist they do. As a matter of fact, we even call our confessions the three forms of unity. The Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgian Confession, and the Canons of Dort. The idea being that these three confessions now encapsulate what is the essence of the life and the doctrine that we as God's children are called to confess. And therefore to see to it that the church and individual members of the church and especially office bearers are in full agreement with that which the confessions set forth. For this unity, Christians are to strive. Tolerance of differences of doctrine within the church creates all kinds of confusion, all kinds of disunity. The church that tolerates differences in doctrine soon loses the marks of the true church. She's not disciplining for error. And she begins down the path of the false church. Now there are churches that never understood this principle. Churches that embrace their unity as purely outward. The Roman Catholic Church, for instance, through the ages, never emphasized the necessity of teaching the Word, never emphasized the importance of knowing Scripture, the importance of understanding and the people having discussion concerning essentials, but rather insisted on the unity that is ours as an outward unity. God's children and God's church embrace unity, being of the same mind. Now, what are some of those principles that involve that unity? The doctrine that we call Calvinism sums up the teaching of Scripture concerning God, concerning man, concerning salvation, concerning Christ, concerning the church, and concerning the end times. And so we have the six loci of dogmatics that lay out with regard to the church and regard to all of the various aspects of doctrine, the truth of the Scriptures concerning God and His glory. That God is sovereign as Almighty God. That nothing happens by chance. Everything according to His sovereign power. That man's state is that of total depravity of nature. God's character is holy and righteous. Jesus Christ is the divinely appointed Savior whom God Himself qualified and sent. And salvation is all by grace through Christ alone. That the Holy Spirit is the divine author that applies that salvation to the hearts and lives of God's children. 
that God, according to His eternal election, chose to Himself a people, and in time, works in their hearts that new life. God regenerates. The regeneration giving to God's children a new life, a new heart, and yet, within a nature that remains depraved until they die. But they live now out of that new life as redeemed children walking in holiness and in obedience out of thankfulness for that salvation. They deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow God. God's children confess, we belong to Christ. We become united in the mind of Jesus Christ. And so that the mind of Christ becomes our mind. And in that, there is that unity, united in the mind of Christ. The more we study together, the more we search the Word, the more we study God's Word and apply it to our lives, the greater that unity develops and grows as we desire to give Him all praise and all glory for the salvation He has given to us. At the points where, and yet we remain differing the principle is that jesus christ is our master we do not rise up in judgment with regard to those matters that jesus and christ jesus christ himself has not made clear we must live before him conscious of our calling to submit to him doing all to his glory we must not demand of others that which We merely believe our opinions. We submit to the word of God. Let every man be persuaded in his own mind, but not judge another. When we live in unity in the faith, and when we strive to walk in wisdom, we pray then for that grace, that God will guide us and God will lead us with respect to these matters. Knowing what are the essentials, knowing what are the non. Now, care must be taken then by the church, by the consistory, the office bearers, to see to it that those who are admitted to the congregation are those who are of one mind, of the mind of Jesus Christ. That they understand Christian doctrine and Christian walk. And great care must be exercised then to see to it that they understand and they are willing to confess what Christ confesses as true and good for his church in order that they reflect that unity and come to the Lord's Supper united in that one mind. Great care and wisdom exercise to not demand more than what the Lord himself insists on. The test of one mind is not the opinion of one man. It's the judgment of the church through her confessions. And that's a great threat to the church that the mind of an individual becomes the standard of unity. That one man, two men, insist on this is what is unity. The one mind must be the mind of Jesus Christ as reflected in his word and set forth historically through the confessions. That mind of Christ is the test of true Christian communion. As much as we appreciate the work of theologians, even the founders of our own denomination, always we're subject to the Word of God. Be all of one mind. Secondly, have compassion one of another. The word literally means here common feelings. Feel alike. Be governed by the same affections. 
cherish a reverence for God and a trust in God and a sense of thankfulness to God for your salvation that reflects that you depend on God and that you live in the consciousness of your daily need for His goodness and for His mercy. And share that with one another. Now, beloved, this admonition is best demonstrated by suffering with your fellow saints. Don't esteem yourself above others and look down on those who suffer. Try to understand the nature of their sufferings. That's hard. That's not something easy to do. It's easy for us to jump to conclusions, to have answers that are not very charitable with regard to the reason of the suffering of others. But try to figure out, how can I help them in their in their suffering? How can I show compassion? And that compassion, rising out of a genuine sympathy, will show itself in bringing God's Word to our fellow saints. We may not have all the answers in the midst of their suffering, but we can direct them to the comfort that we experienced in our trials, the comfort of God's Word. The way of the pilgrim is challenging in this valley of tears. We need one another. And we need that help, that encouragement of one another. When we have one mind, we're living with one another in the same compassion, the same feelings. And rather than then pointing the finger, rising up in judgment, we're showing that compassion. These affections are going to grow by being honest with one another about the temptations that we face, the challenges of our life. They grow in the way of reading the Bible together, studying the Bible, going to Bible studies together and sharing one another the word of Christ and letting that word of Christ dwell richly within us, yielding to the mind of Christ with regard to his spirit, trusting the spirit to guide us and to lead us in understanding. Beloved, where that godly piety, humility, and self-denial, where that brotherly kindness prevails... There's a willingness to esteem others above ourselves. It's very easy for us to mock. It's very easy for us to speak evil. It's easy to allow our tongues to kill one another. The heart of man is desperately wicked. And that wickedness is expressed so quickly through the tongue. It's difficult sometimes to serve on committees within the church with others. It's hard for us sometimes to understand the perspectives of others, where they're coming from. It's hard for us to understand even our spouses sometimes, our siblings, our parents. The Christian who's speaking evil, who lives in hatred, gives occasion again for those around to mock. He who's quick to slam others doesn't know the mercy of the cross. He who's slow to forgive doesn't know in his own heart forgiveness. The Christian who lives in self-denial and compassion, on the other hand, is a powerful witness to the world around. He makes it difficult for others to mock or to ridicule or despise his religion. Thirdly, brotherly kindness. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Now again, note the order of these admonitions. Hold fast the same principles. Cherish and show the same feelings one to another. In other words, live in love as brothers and sisters in Christ, as spiritual brethren who love one another. The basic Christian virtue, the root out of all of the others, out of which all the others spring, is love. 
1 Peter 2.17, love the brotherhood. The Apostle Paul says love is essential in Ephesians 4 verse 2 where he's emphasizing that we are to promote the unity of the church. Love. Now to the extent to which I'm living in that unity of Christ, I show love and I live in fellowship with my brethren. If I'm not walking in love, that's going to be exposed. And generally it's exposed in one of two ways. First of all, by legalistic tendencies by which I quickly rise up in judgment of my fellow believers. I make rules about things that Jesus didn't. I demand of others that they have to follow my will and my authority. And I'm critical, constantly critical, of all those who are within the church. Or, on the other extreme, more antinomian tendencies to cut oneself off from fellow believers by forsaking the way of obedience, justifying one's walk in the ways of sin, arguing I don't need to walk in love because I'm defending the truth. And therefore, it doesn't matter how I talk. It doesn't matter how I treat you because I'm going to make my own judgment with regard to what it means to walk in love. Love takes the back seat now. And I walk in all kinds of wicked behavior with my tongue and with my actions. That's not the way of love. Beloved, the thrust of this admonition is suffer one for another sacrifice for the good of others. Don't live in pride, each seeking your own will, your own way. Live out of love for one another. And beloved, this starts in our families, as we well know. We are willing to sacrifice our money, our time, for the good of one another. The family that lives in love seeks the good of one another. Parents help their children. Children help their parents. They're willing to make sacrifices one for another. They're willing to help their parents, especially as their parents get older, providing for their needs, even financially where necessary. Siblings, look out for one another's need and well-being. Admonish one another. Assist one another. Build one another up. Encourage one another in love. The love of Christ is reflected within our relationships as we show mercy and kindness. And beloved, where this is done within our homes and within our families... The church is blessed. And evidence of that blessing is found. This love, this kindness extends within the church. We work hard to understand the trials, the struggles of one another, so that we can assist them in relieving their distress, directing them to God and to His faithfulness, praying for them, upholding them. Being courteous has to do with humbling ourselves before God's mighty hand. As we confess how small I am, how insignificant I am, how great my sin is, how great my unworthiness is. Philippians 2 verse 3 conveys the idea of this admonition. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Beloved, where this spirit controls us, We do all we can to assist one another for God's sake. Now, Jesus Christ stands as the one in whom these principles are seen in perfection. He humbled himself, though very God. He took upon himself the nature of a man. He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He endured, doing good to his children, carrying out the business of his father, even when they were yet enemies, cruel, mocking, 
And again, Peter understood this. Peter knew that he wasn't worthy of being an apostle. He had forsaken his Lord. He had not shown love to his Lord. And when Jesus comes and says, Peter, do you love me? He couldn't even say, Lord, I love you. Jesus came perfectly to convey the wonder of the love that is to us. And he endured. The external acts of healing were of no lasting value apart from the gospel. Those people still would in time die. But what was powerful was the work of Christ in the hearts of his children. He came not to improve society. He came to save his people from their sin. And those whom he healed, who were wicked, who never did repent, received then coals of fire on their heads and were left without excuse. The same, beloved, today. External acts are no automatic evidence of faith, nor do they have any lasting value apart from faith. We show love and we show kindness, not in a conditional manner. We're not motivated by the fact we're going to get something in return. We do it for Christ's sake. And we do it out of love for God. And we think of this, what did Christ do for me? He planted his life within me. And that root will spring. It will show forth fruit in life and actions that are Christ-like. Be who you are in Jesus Christ. The apostle continues in verse 11, let him do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. Again, quoting from Psalm 34 to ground this admonition. Now, why does the apostle do that? He does it to demonstrate that the New Testament admonitions are no different from the Old. The Old Testament and the New stand together. And his words inspired by God demonstrate then the unity between Moses, between the Psalms, the prophets, and the New Testament scriptures. These aren't new words. These are words that have been preached to you from the beginning. It's a word that's been realized in Christ and the salvation that he accomplished through the cross. It's been implanted in you now by the pouring out of the Spirit. So that now you have that peace with God and you are able to live out of it. A peace that assures you that all the transgressions, all your sins have been blotted away through his perfect work. That he atoned for sin. It's the confidence that God works by his spirit and by the power of his word that we are his covenant friends. He will never forsake us. He'll never cast us off. And that friendship is known objectively with God. And now, fruit and evidence of that union with God, we love as brethren. And we show that conduct within the church. We don't seek peace when we're speaking evil and living in deceit. We seek peace when we're walking in love, in obedience, in thankfulness. Now, there's always in our nature that tendency to war, disturbance, disharmony between God and one another. And so quickly and so easily we can tear our families apart in our pride, justifying our actions as those that are necessary made on the basis of God's word. But are they? Or are there room? Is there room for disagreements? Room for differences, even among Christians? Is the issue a matter of that which is essential? Is it established by God? Or is it more my opinion that I want to try to establish and impose on others? 
There are those who foolishly convince themselves they are God's gift to His church to keep it faithful to the Word of God. That their calling is to keep the church free from heresy. And that apart from them, the church would be doomed. But then, when we think such thoughts, we need to ask ourselves, do we really understand what is heresy? Are we really as careful and specific as the Bible and the confessions with regard to what is heresy? Are we quick to hang individuals on the gallows merely of what we call and identify as heresy? We may view ourselves as God-ordained watchers to watch over everyone else and make sure that everybody in the church is walking and living in a holy manner, outwardly pious lives. Am I walking in love? Remember the beam that's in my own eye. The moat that's so easy for me to see in my brother's eye. Am I walking in love or living as a Pharisee? Do I really believe that I am chief sinner? Or do I just say that? When in reality, I believe myself far more holy than the majority of the members of the congregation. There are those who are constantly looking for opportunity within their family, within the home, within the church to dispute with someone else. Always arguing. And sometimes we wonder, are they arguing just for arguing's sake? Are they doing so with a view to love? Is it really to correct, to help me out? We need to examine our hearts. What is my motivation? Am I turning minor things into major battles? Do I need to be justly admonished for my attitude and my conduct? Where there are concerns, beloved, where there are valid matters to treat, they must be dealt with in humility, dealt with in love. Compassion, love, kindness are principles that stand in all things, no matter what the motive, no matter what the intention may be. This is how we are to conduct ourselves within the church, in our families, as well as toward those who persecute us. We show good. We show kindness. We don't use their tactics. We don't lower ourselves to their level. We show what it means to live out of the love of God that God has shed abroad in our hearts. What's the powerful incentive? The apostle says a couple of things here. First of all, in verse 10, he will that... He that will love life and see good days. The reference here to loving life is interesting. We would ask ourselves, who doesn't love life? Doesn't everyone love their life? This isn't talking, obviously, then about life in general. But it's talking about true life everlasting. Life that involves a life with God. One who loves God and loves that principle of life with God in Jesus Christ as one who knows the fellowship and communion of God. And he's living for God. He's living for the glory of God. Our desire is to live out of that life that is ours in Jesus Christ. He will that will love life, that is the life that is mine in Christ, will not walk in the ways of sin and darkness. The one who walks in sin and darkness hates that life of Christ. He lives according to the flesh. He pursues his own will. The one who loves his life in terms of pursuing his own will is not walking according to this admonition. The devil tempts you to think that you can love life and see good days in the way of pursuing drinking and partying, mammon, the pleasures of this life, 
That's not what the apostle here is speaking of. It's impossible to love life apart from the wonder of God's grace. One who loves life is one who walks according to the light, lives out of the love of God, seeks to reflect that love in his or her walk and conduct. And that way shows love to God. The fruit of God's love in the hearts of his children is that they have this will to love. And they have this desire to use it for God and for his glory. And the Christian then lives his life for God's sake. Life is his opportunity to show thankfulness to God for all the wonders that God has worked on his behalf. And where that means that he's wrong, that he has a loss in this regard or that. He presses on. Good days for him are days of spiritual prosperity. Looking forward to the day when he will be in eternal glory with Jehovah God in the fullness of that life. Thankfulness to God is the glorious incentive of the child of God. And we love that life and we live out of that life by God's grace. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers. What a beautiful word. Jehovah is looking down upon you and me in love. What a wonder of wonders. We don't deserve it. We look at our lives, we look at how we conduct ourselves, and we realize, I'm a failure. I don't love God like I should. I don't live out of that love as I ought. What a wonder of wonders. Jehovah God has his eye upon his people. He has favor for you and for me. And those eyes of love are upon Jesus Christ, the perfectly obedient servant of God, and in Christ. As you live in the midst of this world, and as you seek to live out of thankfulness as a child of God, in your home, and in the church, you're going to cry out to God. The righteous are a crying people, crying out of sorrow for sin, crying because we see within us evidence of so much hatred, crying for righteousness and for God's grace, a cry for God to forgive me and strengthen me in the midst of the challenges of life. It will be a cry for strength to bear under persecution, to bear the suffering that's necessary for a child of God. You will cry as you see your selfish spirit, and you're going to cry as you see how inclined you are toward legalism, toward justifying your sin. These prayers become more and more directed toward the perfection of that new heavenly Jerusalem. Jehovah has his eye on his people and his ears open to their prayers. What a beautiful encouragement. He hears those cries. And he grants us strength day by day that we might walk and live out of that love with which he loved us. On the other hand, the face of the Lord is against those that do evil. The evildoer will not cry. He's not going to pray. He seeks to destroy. He seeks vengeance. He wants to see individuals and groups suffer. He wants to inflict punishment. He esteems himself as God. The face of Jehovah is against that one unto his destruction. Their motives will be exposed and they'll be judged with everlasting judgment. But what a contrast. And we know that contrast is due only to this wonder, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. Verse 9. You say, but what about all of this? How can I even begin to walk in love? 
Beloved, this is the calling that Jehovah God gives you. And God promises to equip those whom he has called. And again, Peter knew what he was talking about. One evening, Peter went out and he wept bitterly. He cried to God like he had never cried before. He had been inclined toward vengeance. He had been inclined toward violence. His tongues and his lips had spoken evil of the one who had loved him unto death. Peter had given occasion for the enemies of God to mock and to undermine God and his word. And Peter wept. He wept sore. And Jesus looked upon him. And Jesus restored him and gave him to know the wonder of forgiveness. Jehovah God sovereignly, powerfully calls us out of darkness into the fellowship of his saints, into the church and the blessedness of that church. And he gives us the grace to seek the good of the body. He ordains us to live unto him within our families, for the good of our families, for the good of the church. He uses us as a powerful tool in his hand over against the wicked around. The blasphemy of the enemy. And he gives us the grace by which we persevere. And notice, he shall inherit a blessing. The word inherit again of highest significance. This isn't anything we earn, anything we deserve. It's an inheritance. It's freely given. It's all of God's grace. And as such, God in his grace upholds us and gives us what we need. Beloved, we go forward in the confidence of Jehovah's eyes and ears of mercy and love toward us. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, forgive us, strengthen us, that we might live in the enjoyment of that powerful love with which thou hast loved us, and that that love might be evident in our walk, our conduct, our attitude, our conversation. For the glory and honor of thy name. Amen.